This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible person about all the amazing things they know that I don't know and that you might not know. This week on the show, we're talking about labor and workers' rights once again because uh, you might know I am on double strike right now, so it's kind of top of my mind. But the thing is, the strikes I'm involved in, both the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, have gotten a lot of press because we're in Hollywood. The job of people in both of our unions is literally to be skilled at making other people pay attention to us. We've got the hottest, funniest, and neediest people on the planet, and the industry that we're disrupting with our strikes is literally inside everyone's house on those giant screens you have on the wall. So it's pretty easy to notice us. But the truth is that writers and actors are just a tiny slice of the overall labor pie in this country. There are other labor battles that are even more significant to the lives of working Americans and that have gotten much less coverage on news and social media. For instance, remember the huge teacher strikes of 2018? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. These were larger than the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA strikes, but because they affected kids and teachers and not what appears on your TV, they didn't get nearly as much coverage. During these strikes, tens of thousands of teachers in West Virginia, regular Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, and a few other places demanded better pay and benefits. And they did this in states that are, uh, to say the least, not famous for their love of unions or public employees. But nonetheless, these brave workers fought and they won. They want better wages and better working conditions, not just for themselves, but for the students they teach as well. And you know what? I don't think those teachers got the attention they deserved. And that's for two reasons, where they were, i.e. not in the biggest states, and more importantly, who they were, mainly women teaching in public schools. This dynamic is true for all of labor history. We tend to focus on just certain industries at certain times, and we think of certain people, often male, usually white, when we think about unionized workers. But as our guest today writes in her book, the labor movement in the U.S. runs deep. And the struggle along the way has required effort and sacrifice from all kinds of people, especially women and people of color, even though their stories are often marginalized. So as hot labor summer turns the corner into cozy collective bargaining fall or whatever we want to call it, I am so excited to have this guest on the show today to talk about the parts of America's labor history that don't get nearly enough attention. But before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you that if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover. Just five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. We would love to have you join our community, patreon.com slash adamconover. And as another reminder, if you like stand-up comedy, I am on tour. Head to adamconover.net to come see me in a city near you. And now, without further ado, I am so excited for our guest on the show today. She is one of the foremost labor journalists working in America. She sheds light on so many labor struggles that do not get enough coverage. And she's the author of a new book called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Please welcome the incredible Kim Kelly. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so excited to have you because you are one of the foremost chroniclers of American labor right now, especially on Twitter, where you're you're very well known for bringing light to labor struggles that, that most people never hear about. Uh, you have a new book out called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Uh, let's, let's start out by talking about the history piece of it. Why do you think 
the history of labor is so untold in America and what parts do we need to be telling more? Oh, man. So when I was first getting into labor, I, I was a big old nerd about it, right? I love history. I love reading about history, especially people's history, things like that. And when I joined a union, which we'll talk about later, I had an opportunity and like a reason to learn more about it. And all of the books I was encountering, because to be fair, I didn't have access to you know the academic writing and the, the work that historians have done. That's kind of a whole different beast. But I'm just going to Barnes and Noble, whatever, seeing like, oh, what do we got for labor books? And so many of them that I found, sure, they're interesting, they're important, they covered people whose contributions mattered so much. But so many of them are just kind of focused on the white guys and hard hats, mm-hmm. like the specific avatar of the American worker, which is there a dog whistle there? Depends on who's saying it. But when it comes to union workers, I think we're, we're made to feel like a union worker is yeah, white guy and a hard hat like my dad who works construction, works in a factory, uh, maybe has real conservative political opinions, you know, someone you want to have a beer with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those things are accurate for some union workers. And some labor leaders and some labor activists, but there's so many other people involved. Like, what about the rest of us? Yeah. And when I wrote the book, I really relished having an opportunity to dig into all those stories that some were new to me, even as this giant nerd, because I I had friends who had access to those cool academic resources. And I found the, the work that so many brilliant historians had done before me and was able to pull it all together and be like, oh, this is where everybody else was. They weren't hiding. They just never really got the spotlight they weren't given the opportunity to get the recognition and the accolades they deserved yeah because they were too much of one thing not enough of the other wrong gender wrong place wrong time wrong color and i mean that's something that arguably is still a problem today but throughout history the people that had to work the hardest they're the ones that got the most done yeah well give us an example of one of those people oh there's so many well did you know that the first factory strike in America happened in 1824 and was led by young women, like no. girls. Them, them were teenagers because, you know, child labor, we've been out here doing that for a long time. This is so, very, yeah. 1824. That's like 50 years after the founding of the country. It's very early in the labor movement. Yes. And these were young women. This is Pawtucket, Rhode Island um, in the 1800s. And young women were kind of for the first time, young white women, I should specify, because obviously... Like young black women, young women of color did not have a choice at mm-hmm. that point mm-hmm. in the labor that they performed. But young white women were starting to enter the workforce and they were not very happy with what they found. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of work were they doing? Factory work, like garment factories, uh-huh. specifically spinning, weaving these these formerly occupations that were crafts, right, that artisans would make and sell and trade in their communities before the industrial revolution. But after factories kind of took over, all of those crafts were transformed and automated and ended up being these gigantic belching factories staffed Mm. by uh, children and adults. And at this point also including young women. And what happened at that point in Pawtucket, they're the bosses of the factories they're working at. They, they set out a new, new order saying they were extending the workday from 12 hours to 14. Wow. And they were slashing wages. And the girls and women were like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was so early on, they didn't even call it a strike. They called it a turnout. <laughs> like, and they just, they walked off. And for a week, they marched, they threw stones at bosses' houses. <laughs> um, they were... They're joined by some of the male workers. They they put the fear of God into those factory owners, or at least the fear of the working class. And they won. The bosses pulled back and they you know, like, okay, our bad. Sorry about that. Forget it. Yeah. And that just set this precedent that, you know, we're still enjoying the fruits of now, right? And yeah. that was a moment when women or white women weren't expected to do much of anything except get married, have kids. And these young women, like some of them were as young as 15, like kickstarted. The labor movement in a way. And when you talk about people of color in the labor movement as well, like especially the intersections between the civil rights movement and the labor movement are so powerful. A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. I assume those are some stories that you that you tell and the sanitation worker strike in I forget which city, but Memphis, Memphis. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about those stories. Oh, man, I have a whole chapter um, called the Freedom Fighters. And of course, I, of course, I mentioned A. Philip Randolph, who founded the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is the first like 
black labor union that was recognized. Yeah. Uh, like certified by the you know American Federation of Labor. And at this time, if I can jump yeah. in and, and you you fill in because you know the history more than me, but like uh, the main one of the main forms of interstate tra- uh, travel was like on these sleeping cars. And those sleeping cars, the people who attended were always black men, right? Always black men. Yeah. And there are all these extra layers to it. Like it was such a, they tended to only hire dark skinned black men because they wanted to inspire this sort of like almost plantation-y system on these cars. They wanted to just emphasize that these workers, these people, these men were there to serve the white customers. Yeah, one of the weirdest details that I learned 10 years ago always stuck with me is that everyone would would call every one of these porters George because George Pullman, right, was yes. the name of the the train the guy who built the train cars or that was the the big industrialist. Yeah. And so they would address all of them as George as though they were like George Pullman's individual servants, so they're calling them all George is incredibly yes. demeaning and just Weird. Like, what if you were on a plane and you just called every single flight attendant? I don't know what the CEO of American Airlines is, but but like you you called them all Dave or whatever. <laughs> that was fucking weird to do that and incredibly demeaning and condescending. Yes, that was all. And and um, in the book, I focused specifically. Like, of course, I wrote about A. Philip Randall's contributions, but I focused um, even more on the contributions of the women, mm. like like Rosina Tucker and some of the other organizers that were part of the auxiliary that were married to some of these workers that were just part of the movement that maybe didn't get as much attention. Mm. Um, Melinda Chateauvert has a really great book called Sisters in the Brotherhood, where she really gets into that whole history. Um, I also spent a lot of time writing about a man called Baird Rustin, who also worked with A. Phil Randolph. A. Phil Randolph was everywhere. (laughs) So I was like, there's a lot of writing about him. He's not going to get his own chapter. What else is everyone, what is everyone else doing? And uh, I did that with a lot of big labor leaders. Like there isn't a Cesar Chavez chapter. There isn't a Walter Ruther chapter, but yeah. there's a Maria Marino chapter. Uh-huh. There's, you know, like that's kind of the yeah. vibe. This is the untold history. You're focusing yeah. on the Cesar Chavez. We love Cesar Chavez, but we're, we're pu- putting the light on some other folks. Yeah. But Baird Rustin, he's fascinating. I think actually um, there's a biopic in, in the yeah. works which mm-hmm. we'll see. But <laughs> he was a, a queer black man who was from Westchester, not too far from Philly. Go birds. <laughs> okay. Don't let's not bring, I know, let's not, not bring <laughs> partisan football culture into this. I have no allegiance to any football team. Don't get mad at me. Okay. I don't, I'm not part of this. I would get kicked out of my house in South Philadelphia. <laughs> if I didn't at least mention that the birds just won. <laughs> <laughs> but Westchester, not quite Philly, but yeah, he was um, a queer black man who was born into like the Quaker tradition. His family is specifically his aunt who raised him or his grandmother or one of his female relatives. She was a really important activist. She like founded the local chapter of the NAACP. He was kind of raised on the ideas of justice and equality and dignity. All of these very important lessons for a young person, especially a young queer person. And he was one thing that I thought was so lovely when I was reading about him was that when he told his family, like, this is me, like, I'm a gay person. They're like, okay, Uh and kept it pushing. So he never really showed that he never acted as though that was a big deal. Like, this is just who I am. Yeah. And this was at a time when that was very, very difficult thing to do for queer folks, especially queer folks of color. But he, you know. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, that huge, incredibly impactful civil rights protest that was like made history in so many ways. He was one of the primary organizers. Yeah. He was like the architect behind it, but he didn't get very much credit for it. Well, I was reading a book about uh, Martin Luther King. Um, It's the uh, it's the big one. It's um, uh. Oh, it's like a big, thick book, and it's by Taylor Branch. Do you know the book I'm talking about? Uh, they're all, I feel like they're all really big they, ones. This is like one of the main ones, and it's called like The Path to, oh, fuck, I can't remember the name. It's ah. fine. Everybody knows the name of this book. It's a famous book, um, and Baird Rustin shows up in the book as as someone who came to Martin Luther King sort of early on and, you know, shared everything that he knew and, you know, sort of an itinerant uh, uh, activist organizer um, during the those early years, but he, uh, Martin Luther King was eventually pressured to like sort of part ways from him. And he like was made to leave town because it was like, oh, he's disreputable. It's that this is a queer man. He can't be part of the center of this movement. Yeah. He got arrested a few times for lewd behavior, things like this. Actually, MLK, he 
uh, Baird Rustin was a student of nonviolence and he came down to the South and taught a bunch of those leaders, like those civil rights leaders that would become these giants. Like they taught them about nonviolence, yeah. about those principles. And actually, at least at least at one point, MLK like stood up for him. It was like, no, he's the best person for this job. I think it was like when organizing the march, there are a couple people on the committee that were like, oh, no. And MLK is like, he's the best guy to do it. Yeah. Like, don't be a dummy. And he was also deeply involved in the labor movement. But something that is also true of the labor movement in the mid 20th century is that it often was not welcoming to black workers, to uh, 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 female workers. Uh, I mean, as you say, some of the, you know, the labor movement starts in the early, tw- early 19th century, but the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first all black union wasn't recognized until the middle of the following century. And there's a lot of history of like white run labor movements kicking out black workers or not being willing to unionize black workers, which is like a real one of the original sins of the labor movement in this country. Is that not true? Yes, absolutely. And not only black workers. I mean, one thing that I think is so shameful, I don't even know if it's ever really been addressed, is um, the Chinese Exclusion Act in Mm. the, the 1880s. The American Federation of Labor at that point, they were all in. They they were like, yeah, we don't want, I mean, the I will certainly not dignify the use of some of the language that was used back then, but mm-hmm. the idea was like, we don't want these new foreign workers coming in and taking our members' jobs. And how familiar does that sound? Yeah. It's almost as if this has been kind of a theme throughout history, whether it's coming from politicians or from union leaders or from, you know, people that just aren't as as educated on the idea of solidarity. Yeah, there has been this impetus throughout history to pit different groups of workers against one another and right. act as though, well, these folks are coming in, they're going to screw you over, they're going to take your jobs. Don't look at us, don't look at where the money's going, but yeah. they're the problem. Yeah. Uh, whether it was it was women or it was black workers or it was workers from Asia or it was workers from Latin America, Central America, and Mexico, there's always someone workers are encouraged to turn their ire onto and their resentment onto instead of the bosses. And that does the bosses work for them. If you turn your anger against other workers who are just unlike you in this, in this uh, uh, not so meaningful way, but that, I mean, my understanding is that fundamentally weakened the labor movement in the 20th century, right? And it does it now too, but think about all of the instances in which, uh, for example, black workers were called in and used as strike breakers, mm-hmm. not respected as workers like, oh, you would be a great fit for this job. It's like, oh, we're going to use the fact that you're different from the workers on strike and make them hate you and make yeah. them attack you and cause animosity there with you. Mm-hmm. And that impacts the labor movement because there's for decades, centuries, like black workers had very few options to join a union to be part of a labor movement. So we like we in terms of like the organized labor movement, we missed out on millions of members. Imagine how much stronger we could have been so much earlier if women and black workers and immigrant workers and Asian workers and brown workers hadn't been excluded throughout the centuries. If those white run labor unions had unionized and organized those black workers in the first place, then there wouldn't be a whole lot of non-union Workers that could undercut their labor. Those those people would also be a member of, of, yeah, the, of a union. Just logic. I mean, shout out to the IWW, for the industrial works of the world, who were founded in 1905 and welcomed all genders and all, all races of workers from the jump. Yeah. Like that's probably what made them so dangerous in the, in the eyes of the government. That's a whole other thing. But it was so uncommon earlier in the, the earlier in history for there to be interracial unions, unions that welcome to black workers. Uh, There's a really gross tradition of having sort of like all black auxiliaries or locals, like just the segregation that was encouraged and at least allowed to flourish in the movement. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of our original sins and there's plenty of them. When I look at the labor movement today, I look at my own union, um, the writer's guild where we have, you know, uh, my union, uh, your union as well. Yeah. You're a member of the writer's guild (laughs) of America East. Yeah. I'm a member of the writer's guild of America West, West coast, East coast, West coast. Uh, here we, here we are. By coastal uniting, officially uniting the beef, (laughs) uniting the guild. There's no beef. Uh, but you know, we have so many people of color and leadership writers of color and leadership and, and who, uh, uh, and part of the, part of the, mission now is we are going to 
address some of the racial inequities in Hollywood as best we can with our union. That is actually one of the goals of the union is to try as best we can to solve some of those issues. We're doing, we're do, we have a lot, a long way to go, um, but we're working on it. Do you feel that the labor movement in general is, has been righting some of those wrongs of the past? I think there has been a lot of movement in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I'm sure not, the labor movement is not a monolith. Yeah. Not all unions and not all union members are the same. Yeah. But I think there has been a very obvious and welcome effort to really address like racial injustice and gender injustice and all of the issues that impact workers and union members all the time. You know, economic bread and butter. You know, we just care about wages and pensions like that doesn't work anymore. It really didn't work in the it didn't really ever work because people have always brought their entire selves to the job. Yeah. And like, this is, this is the thing. It's gotten more complicated to be a certain type of person in this country. I think we're going to see a lot more, hopefully we're going to see a lot more contracts and activism and campaigns that focus on protecting queer and trans workers. Yeah. Workers that can get pregnant, black and brown workers, like all these folks that are under attack. And I do want to commend, there are so many cool new projects in labor that are addressing these, these issues in a very like intentional way. Like I want to shout out the union of Southern service workers. Mm. Like they like racial justice is a core component of their organizing principles and it's all worker led. It's predominantly uh, black and brown workers from the South and low wage jobs. They organize kind of, kind of IWW models and more, more solidarity unions and more direct action, less concerned about contracts or legal this and that. And I think that's kind of the way the future, right? Yeah. Like the workers know what they need. They're the experts. Yeah. And just showing like, especially in a place like the South where there's so many historic layers of oppression, like yeah. there are everywhere in this country, but the South is like a little extra spicy, right? Just seeing the work that they're doing gives me so much hope. Yeah. Because that wouldn't, it wouldn't have been impossible a century ago, but it would have been so much harder. And I'm glad that they have the space and the support that they've been getting from the movement to do the work that they're doing. Like that's, that is a win. Well, and when you look at, when you look at the South, which is, you know, a a place with a lot of historic racial oppression, it's also the part of the country that has the most right to work states. There's the lowest union membership, right? That has the, people have the least racial rights and the least labor rights in the same place. And I wonder why that would be, you know, could it be that those two (laughs) things go together and could it be that workers expressing their labor rights could also help, you know, solve uh, the the racial inequalities in those areas? Ain't that a coincidence? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing that I always like to hammer home is the idea that these are separate buckets. Like we're dealing with racial injustice issues. We're dealing with labor issues, with women's rights issues, with queer rights issues. Like, with immigrant issues, I think there's this input, like this uh, inclination to kind of silo out these big picture issues and act as though there isn't a lot of overlap. Yeah. But there's so much. Yeah. Every it's all the same thing. It's all this broader struggle for working class liberation. And it's it's like I like to say any any protest you go to any like any picket line. Well, maybe not picket line. because It's going to ruin my my good little sentence. I'm going to say, but (laughs) any protest you go to for any cause. Most people there are going to have to go to work the next day. Yeah. And so it's like you cannot separate those things. Yeah. And we're not going to get any of the stuff we want and we need and we deserve if we're not working in a collective way, if we're not embracing our, ourselves as workers, as well as people, as well as all the things that make up our identities. And the cool thing is about unions is that this is where average people can build power, not just request change or vote for change or donate for change or demand change, but actually force change. Because like you say, everybody in this country works. And that means that everybody, that is the spot where they have power. When you go into, I don't care if you work at McDonald's or Citibank or whatever, that company needs you. You have power there. If you gather together with your coworkers, you can make change. And that change doesn't need to be limited to labor rights. It can be, it can be yeah. an environmental change. It can be you know climate change or something. It can be uh, a racial justice change. It can be uh, queer liberation change. Yeah, um, bargaining it's, it's, for the common good, like the yeah. Chicago Teachers Union kind of immortalized. Yes. Like we have so much power and there are so many more of us than there are of them. <laughs> and and I, a union is the vehicle that lets us 
use that the, the our numbers to our benefit and turn that yeah. into power. It's like the little fish graphic, you know, and there's like a big fish going after a little fish. It's like, oh no, little fish. But then there's a whole bunch of little fish going after the big fish. Yeah. <laughs> if they're organized, right? You have to Yeah, you can't they be have all to, over the place. They have to make the big fish shape. They can't just be you swim in every which way. All the fish have to go. Okay, let's make the big fish shape and and gobble the thing. Exactly. Uh, you you said. Uh, oh, I just want to talk about one other group of, of folks. Mm. Um, uh, disabled workers. Uh, tell me a little bit about the role that they play in the labor struggle. Oh man, well we're out here. We're like twenty five percent of the population. <laughs> yeah. Uh, though it's kind of hard to. It is talking about being siloed. That is sort of a weird. A weird zone, right? Like I think disabled workers and disabled like disability rights in general is almost like a touchy one because because yeah. people that are currently able don't always know what to do with us. Yeah, but um, well, and people, a lot of people who are disabled also don't identify themselves as such. You know, it took me a long time to get to that point because mm. I have like I have like a very rare hello internet. <laughs> I have like a pretty rare <laughs> congenital disorder called etrodactyly. And to me, it's like, well, not that big a deal. Like, yeah, I get eight fingers. What do you want me to do about it? But, <laughs> but becoming more involved in the disabled, like disability community, I've been like, it's been really nice to yeah. find folks, especially because I am like, I'm, I'm a weightlifter. So finding other disabled oh, weightlifters yeah. has been really oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Look at me. I'm built like a Soviet propaganda poster. <laughs> <laughs> look, your eight fingers are going to beat my 10 in a, in a arm wrestling any day. I bet. Uh, I mean, probably, <laughs> but, um, yeah, personally it was really wonderful getting to know more folks in the community and finding a place for myself in it, especially as a labor guy, because when I was researching the book, I knew, okay, I definitely want to have a chapter on disabled workers because yeah. we kind of get left out a lot. Yeah. Uh, even though so many people, whether they show up disabled, like I do, or they become disabled as a result of their job. Like there's a lot of us out there and yeah. it's only like you're only one bad day away from like joining our club. Yeah. So, well, you know, Judith human, the, you know, oh, I love her. She's in the book. She's incredible. And, and she passed away just last year. I think we had her on the podcast a couple <gasps> years ago, more like something like five years ago. She was incredible, but she said, this is the one, you know, uh, disabled folks. This is the one group. Everybody is going to join eventually. Everybody, if you get old enough, you, you yeah, will become right? disabled in some yeah, way. If you're lucky, you're going to join yeah. the club. At the very least, your eyesight's going to go, you know? And and that to me was pretty revelatory in, in terms of how I think about, especially given my own learning disabilities and my eyesight and all these sorts of things. Oh yeah, this is a, this is a category I can, an identity I can interrogate a little bit more for myself, you yeah, know, we like, don't often do. I belong here too. Yeah. It's a nice feeling, especially when you have like, my thing is a little bit more rare. So finding people that get, it in a yeah. way it's very nice it's kind of like how it felt joining the labor movement and getting people getting to know people that had similar worldviews and politics and class backgrounds to me like yeah. it was just nice and so when i had the opportunity to to write this book and do a whole chapter on disabled workers i thought it would be easy i thought well of course there's got to be tons of writing about how incredibly important disabled workers have been to the labor movement and i'm sure it's out there but I couldn't find very much that mm. really emphasized that overlap in yeah. a way that I, the way I wanted to see. So I tried to do it myself. Mm. And one of the examples I really love, which involves Judy, to mention when I have these opportunities, is um, the Section 504 protests in 1977. This was the, the Cliff Notes is that the government had recently passed the Rehabilitation Act, which included a provision of like Section 504. That essentially barred, it was like barred federal discrimination, like barred job discrimination against disabled folks, like in federally funded uh, employment. It was like, you know, kind of a, it wasn't a huge thing, but at that moment it was a huge thing. It was the first kind of civil rights protection for disabled mm. people. And the government was dragging its heels on actually implementing, like enforcing the regulations that we needed to act for it to happen. And so after years of sending letters and doing petitions and protesting in all the nice ways that we're supposed to, Judy Human and Kitty Cohn and a bunch of other disabled activists were like, all right, 
well, you forced our hand here. I mean, those of us who have them. <laughs> My little joke. <laughs> Look, this is a kind of joke. I, I love to see someone make a joke that I cannot make. That's what I, that's what I really enjoy as a comedian. <laughs> and people get so freaked out when I do that. No, I love Not it. everyone. Some people don't I'm here like, for it. <laughs> I've got a lobster girl tattoo right here. Like, <laughs> Incredible. Like the that is. That is fucking cool. <laughs> the brand is strong. But, <laughs> but so they got together and said, okay, we're going to have to do something a little bigger. And what they did was they launched the lo- the longest peaceful occupation of a federal building in U.S. history. Wow. In multiple cities, but very specifically in San Francisco, this group of disabled activists and their allies and some of the care workers that assisted them, they occupied federal buildings, uh, the yeah. health and uh, the health and health services, you know, that one, uh, whatever it was called then. And uh, it lasted, at least in San Francisco, it lasted for like a month. And yeah. the reason it was able to last so long and it was so effective was that they had support from the Black Panthers. Wow. Uh, because Brad Lomax, who was one of the organizers, a disabled man who's part of it, he was he was a Black Panther. Wow. So they helped feed them and they helped fund them. And when they came time to go to D.C. to have a meeting with Congress and try and figure things out, Judy was part of that, too. The Black Panthers not only helped, they they helped fund that. They paid for their plane ticket. Wow. And when they got, when the activists got to New York, the Mashes Union, IAM, they they helped them out with office space and supplies. And they also helped with transportation. Remember, this was before the ADA. A lot of those folks used wheelchairs and mobility aids. And there wasn't. There weren't curb cuts. There wasn't, yeah. you know, accessible there were, there were transportation. There were elevators and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the machinists, they showed up with a box truck and some rope and we're like, we're going to figure this out. <laughs> 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 and then I just love thinking about that example because then like they won, they got what they wanted. And without them, we wouldn't have had the ADA. We wouldn't have had all of these. Yeah. It's still, it's still not enough. It's never enough, but we wouldn't, it would be a lot harder for disabled people to take place like be in public life and to work and to do the things we want to fucking do. You now that's an incredible story because I mean, I've talked about it on this show before what a big deal the ADA was. It's, you know, as, as important as, you know, LBJ's civil rights act, you know, like those, those landmark civil rights bills that the ADA is as big of a civil rights bill yeah. for disabled folks. And it took like radical action by folks to get it passed it is one of the big civil rights victories in American history. But I had not heard this story before about how it was not just the disabled activists. It was the solidarity of the black activists and labor unions. Yeah. And that like, made it happen. That's how they won. Yeah. And it was so, it was so gratifying to read about that and learn about that. Uh, I think it's Kim Nielsen's Disability History of the United States has a really good like breakdown. It was like, oh, look, like it's so it's such a simple thing to say, like we should work together. But. When you all come together and realize, because it, it was an issue that impacted everyone. Yeah. Like there were disabled Black Panthers who were part of the occupation. Like if you're a machinist, you're losing some fingers at some point. Yeah. The, you uh, know? What do machinists do? They just work with machines and yeah, okay. stuff. Aeros- machinists, machinists. Machi- machinists, machinists. I might be Mach- saying it wrong. No, no, no. I, I just I, know I, I, No, machinist sounds cool. Yeah. I have some like. Machinist. Machinist. Just machinist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, lo- they're losing fingers in that machine. Yeah, and, the, and, and the Mashin. The, 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 the Mashin. Dude, the Mashin of, took my finger. Okay, oh so my God. go on. A lot of people lose fingers. One <laughs> one funny thing, when I was down covering um this coal miner's strike in Alabama, I, I always, because I look a little atypical in some places, mm-hmm. and I'm always curious like how people will react to me, because I have a kind of an unconventional appearance. I remember asking some folks, oh, like, what are, you know, what, what are people saying? But, you know, oh, tattoos, long hair, whatever. I was like, well, does anyone say anything weird about my hands? I'm always kind of curious. I said, oh. Girl, everyone here is missing fingers. We're coal miners. <laughs> fit right in. <laughs> oh my God. On that note, we got to take a really quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about some of the, the labor struggles that are going underreported today and how workers are using solidarity to change the country. But we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Kim Kelly. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me For many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. 
These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, we read a bunch of ads. We're back with Kim Kelly talking about the labor movement. Uh, you cover a lot of recent labor movements in this book that have gone uncovered or at least undercovered in other reporting. Uh, what did you find that shocked and surprised you the most that you think more people need to know about? Oh, man. Okay. So, you know, when you're researching something and it's there, there's a gap and you can't figure out why is there this kind of black hole of information between this thing happening and this thing happening? And then you find it and it's like, oh, my God, this is so satisfying. <laughs> I had one of those happen. Um, so when I was researching and writing the chapter, The Prisoners, about incarcerated workers, I had found a ton of really fascinating uh, writing and research on the 1970s when the prisoner rights movement was really huge. I mean, the mm -hmm. 70s, a lot of rights movements are really huge. People yeah. were really getting into it. There's the black power movement, brown power movement, women's liberation, queer liberation, like. There's so much happening. And the prisoners' rights movement was part of that. And there were prisoners' unions that were popping up around the country. Wow. Include California was a big one, but they were kind of popping up all over the place. And, and then later in 2014, the uh, IWOC, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which is under the IWW, they formed. And that has wow. kind of launched a whole new era. But between the 1970s and 2014, of course, or you know, incarcerated workers were still protesting and strike, finding ways to to push back. Yeah, can, can I ask what you mean for? Because because I think you've told a lot of people, hey, a prisoners' union or an incarcerated persons' union, they'd be like, well, hold on a second, people aren't working in prison, are they? But I'm sure they are. Just tell me oh, what boy. kind of work you're talking about. There's so many things. Uh, prison labor is like a billion dollar business. Wow. There are people in prisoner. Not only are are some of the incarcerated people, you know, working as janitors or in the kitchens, like just helping the facility itself run. Yeah. How's that for irony? There, there are also programs in a lot of prisons where like folks are manufacturing things like clothing or furniture. Um, some yeah. of the wilder ones, I think out West in some places, like they'll work with horses or animals in California. Very famously, uh, incarcerated workers were put to work as firefighters wow. for those giant, scary fires y'all have all the time. Yeah. Literally, you're you're in prison and it's like, hey, field trip today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You get to put on you get to put on firefighting gear and go walk into a blaze that you know what? Non-incarcerated people maybe don't want to get as close as, as we're gonna have yeah, you get. For two dollars an hour. Two dollars an hour? I think they got a raise. I think it was just one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, that's incredibly dangerous, deadly work to be doing for two dollars an hour yeah some workers in places like uh, like angola that which is itself built on a former plantation in yeah. louisiana like i don't think they are paid at all like there's no guarantee like there's no minimum wage for incarcerated work people make cents on the dollar 
Yeah. They it's it's modern day slavery. This is the this is the constitutional loophole that yep, the Thirteenth uh, Amendment yep. exactly like Ava DuVernay had that amazing documentary about it. Like it's yep. very much a real thing. You know, my when I was writing this book, one of my best friends was incarcerated at Rikers, and he had a job. You know, he worked in the kitchen. Yeah. It was kind of like kind of a win because so I had access to like a little bit more food. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. and, and also. You know, I think people do it to a certain extent, like it's, it's working is better than not working, you know, like something if, to do. if you're, yeah, you got something to do. I, I could imagine being in, I'm sure plenty of the jobs are not better than not working, but firefighting, I think not better, but I can imagine, Hey, you, you got, you got some time to kill. Um, but that's, that's still like desperate exploitation. Incarcerated workers. I think it was in Rikers or at least in New York, uh, earlier in the pandemic. Guess who was digging all the graves for people buried on Heart Island? That's been a longstanding program. Kim, that is so fucking bleak. Yeah, my buddy. And I don't have like the, the proper documentation evidence to really cover it, cover it. He was telling me like, yeah, people didn't have that much of a choice. Yeah. They're, you know, when your boss is like, oh, you want to work late tomorrow? I think it'd be a great idea if you did. Imagine if your boss could control your entire life and when you got to go home and see your family. Yeah. So this is this is the state of things like it, talking about workers that are not, you know, that are less covered, less seen, less yeah. cared about. These are these are workers who who need a union very badly. Yeah. And here's the thing. Yeah. When I was looking into that gap, I I figured out why. OK, so I, I was interviewing my friend uh, Victoria Law, who's a brilliant journalist and author. And I was talking to her about this. I think I was just interviewing her for the book because, like, of course, she would have talked to Vicky Lodge writing about prisons. But um, I mentioned, like, yeah, I, I don't know what really happened with all the organizing. It seems like everything just kind of stopped. And she told me, you know, there was something that happened, some Supreme Court thing in the 70s. You, you should look it up. See if you, you can find what I'm talking about. And I did. The 1977 Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union case. They ruled the Supreme Court ruled that incarcerated workers do not have the right to join or organize a union. Wow. That's what happened. Yeah. That's what happened to all the organized. And the Supreme Court, imagine this, jumped in and took a bunch of people's rights away. Yeah. People that already had very few rights. Yeah. And that had a very chilling impact on the all the organizing that was happening. It took a long time for folks to get to a point where, okay, we're gonna figure out something to get around this. And IWOC started in 2014. They and other organizations like um, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak and the Free Alabama Movement, uh, they helped organize a lot of those really big prison strikes we heard about in 2018 and 19 and 2020. Uh, you know, they happen almost yearly because things are very bad in prisons. And that is absolutely a labor issue. Like these yeah. are workers going on strike. They just have so many fewer rights and resources than those of us outside the walls. Yeah. And finding out that little, the smoking gun to that and seeing the government was actually like, no, 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 you, you're not allowed. You don't have the right to unionize. Yeah. Like, wow, that explains so much. And now I'm so much angrier. <laughs> well, and it, it, it's also connected to, you know, the whole history of the labor movement is that workers fought and died uh, and were killed by the companies and by their own government. Until finally the federal government made laws and said, no, you, you, we're going to federally protect the right to have a union that uh, in the absence of governmental protection, like those with more power will just kill us. Right. But that's a problem when the government decides in the opposite way. Oh, hold on a second. The workers don't have those rights, uh, especially because the oppressor in that case is the government, right? <laughs> right? Because they're the ones who are employing the the workers to go fight the fires or, you know, stamp the license plates or whatever. Uh, it's uh, a really, it's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. And it's, I'm just so grateful whenever I hear about folks who are organizing, who are finding yeah. ways to push back and protest. Oh, a fun little historical fact. Please. We all know about the Attica Rebellion, of course, the uprising in the 70s. That was, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. That actually, like, the seeds of that came from a metal shop strike in the prison a year previously. That was led by a young lord uh, named Che Nieves and some of his co-workers. They had gone on strike to protest their working conditions and they wanted to raise. Wow. And that kind of, and they're obviously, they're involved in, you know, political organizing, but that kind of. And it just just helps get some gears turning. Yeah. Help get some people talking to each other. 
amazing what can happen uh, when people get together and say, you know what, this sucks. Yeah. I mean, organizing, even when you don't win a particular battle, like organizing is its own reward because it leads to more organizing in the future. At least yeah. just any time that people are coming together. That's why, you know, when we talk on the show about like, how do you organize? Just start by talking to your coworkers, yeah, have that first meeting because you'll discover things and you'll start the ball rolling down the hill. But doing that in a prison environment is got to be so almost impossible. What are, what are the tactics that organizers are using in prisons today? Yeah, actually, my my buddy who I mentioned who was in Rikers, uh, shout out to David. He um, he actually helped organize a strike while I was writing this book while he was in Rikers. And I was wow. like, bro, you really timed this great. Um, and he this was early in the pandemic and he he and like 30 other guys were in a dorm and they didn't have masks or soap or any hygiene like cleaning products they didn't have anything they were just left there to die like so many other people that like still are and especially at that point or in in prisons and jails across the country and they had um well this i think it it was like a stick up and that is not what one would think it's not like bonnie and clyde vibes like they basically refused to eat. They refused to take their trays at lunch. Wow. And hunger strikes are a huge tool when it comes to like incarcerated workers organizing, because that is one thing you can control. Yeah. You can control what goes into your body. Or, well, I mean. Until they intubate and, you. Yeah. I was like, oh, the suffragettes might, might want a word about that one. Right. But there's so many small ways you can protest. Yeah. But they're, but they're not. It's not the same as the the tools that we have. You can't join a picket line. You can't quit you can yeah. we can maybe quit but like see what happens yeah you know it's people had to get so creative so food related things or people refusing to go to work or just refusing to buy things from the commissary like yeah people have had, had to get so creative but they've done it and when folks on the outside of the walls are able to lend support like put money on the books you know mm. get communiques out get interviews out like i was able to interview actually everybody uh, my chapter was either uh, currently or formerly incarcerated or it had some, or it was an abolitionist with a lot of experience with the system, like using the the freedom and privilege we have out here to help our incarcerated siblings. Like that is huge. We need I think the labor movement should do a little bit more of that. I would love to see that personally. And have these, you know, workers such as your friend, have they had success? I mean, have they actually force change through these tactics yeah like well they they got the mask and the soap and the the cleaning products they wow. wanted you know it's it's incredible what people can do even in the most inhumane conditions almost yeah. impossible conditions when they work together and yeah. remind fo- the the people oppressing them like look we're humans and you know we're not as easily controlled as you think we are yeah. maybe think twice <laughs> yeah, and he's home now. He's living in Paris. He literally works at the Louvre. He's had a great time post- <laughs> after he came home. This this guy, this fucking guy. Well, the, <laughs> you know the thing that strikes me uh, another connection between the labor movement in general and uh, people who are incarcerated is that uh, I know from you know reading enough firsthand journalism about what it's like you know in prisons. Uh, you know, journalist Ted Conover, who I'm only distantly related to, if anything, not a plug <laughs> the guy's not my cousin. Um, but you know, he wrote a book called new Jack about his time as a prison guard in sing sing and that psychology and stuff. Um, one thing you realize is, Oh, the, the correctional officers are terrified of the prisoners. Um, they're, they're so scared of them because they know that if things just go a little sideways, right? Like they have a lot of power that the, that the folks who are incarcerated have a lot of power. Um, and Imagine if everybody's boss felt like that, <laughs> well, they do that. That's my point. The, the, you know, the bosses like, like, why do they work so hard to, to, you know, break unions? Why do they lie to people? Why do they work so hard in this one thing? It's because they know that the workers are more powerful than they are if they uh, are allowed to organize or if they, if they take that step. Right. right. And that's why they try so hard to keep us apart. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've been noticing in the past few years, especially since I got involved in the movement in terms of divisions being sown, is I've seen that there's been so much talk about like creative workers or white collar workers like, oh, you don't need a union. Oh, you don't count. Your job is fun. Like, what, what yeah. do you have in common with a farm worker? Yeah. And that is such a it's like a newer, just a newer version of the same old shit. Like, oh, well, you you don't count. Like you're, they, these people have nothing in common with you. Like you should not talk to them. 
you don't need a union. We're friends. We're family here. We have a pool table, <laughs> you know, and that's just another way to keep people apart from building solidarity. Yep. And I think, you know, the fact that the UAW, hell of a union with a very complicated, interesting industrial history. I think at this point, 25 percent of their members are graduate students work in academia. Yeah. And that's like the UAW. Like you can't yeah. get more, you know, like historic, like tough guy like yeah. american union the new aw and them embracing that and realizing okay we have to expand our definition of what a worker is what yeah. a union member is that's how we grow and change well, and those grad students who if folks watching or listening don't know first of all grad students are enormously exploited by universities they're asked to do enormous amounts of work and they're paid sometimes you know very low five figures like a scholarship or a stipend yeah. Um, they live in often poverty conditions that really affects who can uh, join academia, who can like do that kind of work. So uh, that unionization effort is really important. And those grad students are such strong union members. They've come out to the Writers Guild and, and Screen Actors Guild picket lines so often in their UAW shirts. They're just so they're like, they're like so kick ass. And the best part is they won like, you know, yeah. the, the folks from the Imagine UC that. system. Yeah, they they came like. They're like, yeah, we were just on a strike a little while ago. And I get to go like, yeah, you guys fucking won that. And they go, yeah, you're going to win your strike too. And then we like <laughs> fist bump and we like, yeah. <laughs> it like feels yeah, so fucking good. It feels so good. <laughs> I want everyone to have that experience. Oh my God. I love it so much. I got to talk to a bunch of them when I was in Berkeley earlier. Like I've been book torn around the East Coast or the East Coast, West Coast, did the East Coast too, West Coast. And I'm just getting to talk to all these students who were like, yeah, we're in a union or we're thinking about unionizing. Oh, the RAs we're talking about. It's like, yes. Yeah. Yes, child. Yes. Do it. Like yes. you're you're allowed. That's like one of the biggest things we encountered back when I was organizing advice. It wasn't that people uh that, you know, we were younger, like worked in New York media. Like it wasn't like I come from a union family, but I never had that advantage. We uh, we no one that I talked to is anti-union or or against the idea, really. They just didn't know what a union was and they didn't know that we were allowed to join them. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm a social media editor. Like what am what yeah. am, there's a union for me? Like, yeah. Turns out, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, that happens here in here in Hollywood, right? Which is a very unionized industry. It's yeah. one of the more unionized industries in America. There's still a ton of workers who are not part of the union, right? There's there's VFX workers, there's PAs, there's a lot of people who have producer in their title, post-production workers, all these sort of folks. And what they'll often say is, even though they work with union workers, the, there's this misapprehension that, oh, because I'm this type of worker, I don't get to be in a union. I can't be in a union because I'm a producer or a VFX worker or a PA. The unions don't want me. They won't let me in. And the reason people believe this is because often the bosses have told them that. They've said, oh, you can't join because you're not in a union. Oh, sorry, because you're this type of worker. You can't be in a union. And then that spreads as a myth. And so half of my job because what I really care about is expanding union coverage in Hollywood. A lot of my job is just telling people, no, you can, you, you can't, like, it doesn't matter what kind of job you have. You have power. You can join a union. You actually can do it. You just need to like take the first step and the second step and the third step. There's a lot of steps. It might take a decade, but you can start, uh, you can start a union for your job. Yeah. You really can. You're allowed. That's one of the things I wanted to come through in the book. Like this movement is for you. People exactly like you, no matter what your background or identity or your history, like someone just like you did this yeah. and you're allowed and maybe you should think about doing it too. <laughs> you know, back in the reorgan, like I, my job when I first joined the union, I was the heavy metal editor at a music website. <laughs> like I was even I, when I was going into, it, I was like, I, like we get to have a union, like what local six, six, six is going to come. There's a local six, six, six. They're in Virginia. Are they really? IBW. I have a t-shirt. Oh my God. So <laughs> I got so excited. I'm just tweeting about it. And someone DM me like, did you know? <laughs> oh my God. It's so good. You are so much fun. <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, well, another type of, uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about, that would have been a great note to end on, but I, I have to ask you about this. You, I've seen you write on Twitter so much about, uh, about some coal, coal miner strikes in America that, uh, and every time you tweet about them, you're like, no one else is covering this. These strikes are so important. Uh, so I, I just tell me about one of them and, and why you have been so moved and why you want to let people know about it. Oh, I've been so mad. And there, and there have been like some great independent journalists have shown up throughout 
the past couple of years, like there's been a little bit of mainstream media coverage, but th- there's this one strike in particular that I, I really dug into in uh, Brookwood, Alabama in April 2001, a thousand coal miners at Warriamet Coal in Brookwood walked off on an unfair labor practices strike and they just stayed out for so much longer than anyone thought. Um, the strike ended up being almost two years long. Wow. Which is, I think, the longest strike in Alabama history. It's up there for coal miner strikes in American history. Wow. And I ended up getting so embedded and so invested. Uh, I didn't even intend to start covering it. I just happened to be down in Alabama uh, covering the Bessemer Amazon Union Drive. Yeah, which got which massive co- coverage, like yeah. wall-to-wall press coverage, every outlet. Yeah, it was yeah. great. They're they're there's like French journalists underfoot at the union hall is wild. Um, and I was there like for a rally and I heard, Oh, there's a coal miner strike happening down the road. I was like, Oh, cool. Clearly that'll be the next big story. Oh, I can get in there. You know, I'm a freelancer. I got to take what I can get. And I went down there and it was like, Oh, I talked to some of the workers, heard what was going on, brought some donuts. It's like, Oh, this is really cool. And I went back and talked to an editor like, yeah, I got to cover this. But then I noticed that, no one else really showed up mm. for a very long time. Like there was some coverage, sure. But I think I just, it just kind of became almost a personal crusade to me because yeah. I got so I got to know so many of the workers and especially their families, like a lot of the spouses, the women and uh, retirees that were involved in the auxiliary. They're doing such incredible work, like building from scratch, essentially this massive mutual aid network where they're wow. delivering like 300 grocery bags a week to families. They had a like a free store and they had children's clothing. They held events. They had a union Santa. Like wow. they also gave interviews and coordinated with other groups. A lot of these women in the beginning had been um they had worked at home with their kids. They were from maybe more traditional, like conservative religious families. And by the end of it, some of the I was like out in Vegas with some of these girls. Like they were we were out in New York City. They were giving speeches. They were like on calls with Bernie Sanders. One of them, Hayden Wright, love you, girl. She's now a union organizer. Like throughout the course of the strike, like she found like she found so much power and so much inspiration in the labor movement. She's like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I thought that was so incredible, especially the backdrop of organizing and striking in Alabama, which is the people that run it are so conservative, anti-union and just generally awful. Yeah. It's a very difficult place to be in a union, especially if you want to strike. Yeah. Like. None of the elected politicians on the GOP side showed up or mentioned it at all. Uh, the state troopers and all the police were awful. They were The company was allowed to get away with a lot of violence on the picket line and intimidation. There was so much happening. It was like some of it was real like mind wars, Wild West, Appalachian type shit. But it was really hard to get people to pay attention because coal is complicated, right? The yeah. world's on fire. We know like it's complicated. And a lot of the workers were, you know, more conservative white folks who voted yeah. for people that you and I probably didn't vote for. Not all of them. They were not a monolith either. And it was like a multiracial workplace. Yeah. It wasn't. They weren't just a stereotype. Yeah. You know, but I think some that's maybe how some folks decided to view them. Yeah. And they didn't get quite as much empathy and sympathy as I think other groups of workers who were fighting similar fights have gotten. And I understand the reasons or the reasoning behind that. But I also think that if we're going to say we care about workers and that an injury to one is an injury to all, we have to mean it. You know, I think there's some things we can argue about after every worker has a living wage and health care and safety and health regulations for the job and their yeah. kids are okay at school. You know, like if we're going to say we care about workers, we have to care about each other as humans. Yeah. And that was something that I got pulled in. Like I'm in all the group chats, like, <laughs> I got very, very, very close. I met like I've met people's parents. Like there's a baby that I met when they were 18 months old. Now they're like running around. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I got really into it. And it really reminded me when I when I put it in the book and I was doing research stuff. I uh, It reminded me of Barbara Kingsolver's book, Holding the Line. Mm. It's about kind of a very similar situation in a much different place. Copper miners who are predominantly um, Mexican-American and indigenous and Mexican in, um, in Arizona who are going up against these mi- copper mine bosses and they're treated awfully and had the national guard called in all of this awful stuff happened. And the women involved in that strike had a very strong auxiliary. They went from more behind the scenes work to touring the country, giving speaking engagements and, and fighting cops on the picket lines. Like 
just seeing the way that involvement in a labor struggle like that can fully change someone's entire perspective and yeah. the trajectory of their life. I think that is so powerful. Yeah. And even if they weren't like fun to have a beer with and they weren't my friends now, like I think that is something that it deserves so much more coverage and interrogation because if that can happen in a place where all the odds are stacked against these folks, Imagine what could happen somewhere is maybe a little bit easier. Yeah. Right. If we want to reach people, we want to change the world. We want to create a better world. You're going to have to pull some people with you. And a union is one of those places you can find common ground that's almost entirely unavailable otherwise. Like yeah. a union a work is where you have to spend time with people that aren't like you. Yes. Where else does that happen? Right. Yes. And a union is how you build like community and affinity and solidarity and see each other's perspectives. And if someone has harmful or hateful views, if they, unless they're too far gone, like that's how maybe you can chip away at some of that and get yeah. them to see the world a little bit different. Right. I think unions are such well, that, an engine for change. Well, that's the deeper value, you know, and it is my uh, in my own union work is is the solidarity with other workers. Right. Oh, here's here's how I'll put it um, is you say that a union is where you show up. Uh, and spend time and work in solidarity with people who are not like you, except what you discover is that they are like you in ways you did not appreciate. Like exactly. those workers in, you know, at the, at that mine. Sure. Maybe if we were to immediately compare notes, we don't watch the same TV channels and we didn't vote for the same people, but on a deeper level, we're both workers working for a boss engaged in that struggle. We both care about our families. We both care about our lives. We both like deserve a, 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 you know, a safe, comfortable life. We both deserve healthcare and all those sorts of things. And when we're engaging on that level, that's the deeper value to me. Like ultimately any political opinion I have is driven by my commitment to meet other people on that level. And so if we're doing that, you know, like I said, well, forget about all of the, you know, all the day-to-day -day politics, all the ways I've been told I'm different from you. We're engaging on the way that we're the same. And then the other ways were different. If there's some we want to hash out later, I think we'll have a pretty good basis to have a respectful conversation about, you know, whatever other issue we want to pull apart, you know, but because we're engaged in a common struggle over our lives, you know, and and the, like so it, it makes all of those ways that we're separated or that the bosses try to separate. It makes it makes it trivial um, because we're we're actually seeing each other in the way that matters. It all comes back. And so much of it, I think, is not to be flippant, but kind of a branding issue, mm -hmm. right? Kind of based on the kind of media person consumes or what the politicians they think are at, are representing them have to say. Like, I think you could pick almost any person in this country and be like, you know what? Rich people have too much money. The people at work should probably make a little bit more. Uh, kids should be safe in school. Nobody, you know, people should have health care. People should have a place to live. Most people would agree with you. Yeah. It's just when you're like, and as a socialist, like, whoop, or like, as a conservative, like, it's, a lot of it is just the way that we communicate. Yeah. And I think they're, like, when folks in uh, in Alabama ask, like, oh, what a, you know, what, you Democrat? Like, I don't like either of them. Yeah. And that's accurate. And I feel like a lot of people feel like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, do I need to tell them, like, well, actually, you know, Peter Perkop Kropotkin, like, no, we don't need to get into, you know, <laughs> like, the, the particulars. Like, I'm here. I'm listening to you. You're yeah. listening to me like we can work with this. Yeah. And I think that's something that is a valuable lesson, perhaps, for the rest of the movement. Yeah. That, you know, some people, fuck them. You know, like there's, you know, we don't need to be nice to Nazis ever. But there's a lot more humanity out there that I think maybe we're not seeing. Yeah. And especially in the labor movement, we can't afford to be like, oh, OK, well, like, fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. Like they live in this state. They work in this industry. Like yeah. if I told you about oil refinery workers in the Bay Area who are struggling after they, get, they got laid off because like there were climate, um, some kind of climate laws are put in place. Like climate laws, good. Workers suffering bad. How do we deal with that? You're not just going to throw them away. They're people. Yeah. Like we're all just people. Like that sounds yeah. very like hippie kumbaya. Maybe I've been on the West Coast too long. But <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe that's where I, why I care so much about this stuff. Like I'm from a blue collar rural union family in a forgotten part of the country. Like my family's <laughs> like, they're more like, like libertarian, like Barry gold in the backyard types, <laughs> not quite, like, but they like Reagan. Like they're, they're, we have very different political views, but yeah. Union, like without the union, 
our lives would have been much, much worse. Yeah. And I think there's just a lot we can learn from one another. And unions are a great place to do that. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, Kim. This has been such an inspiring talk. Um, where uh, if you want to pick up a copy of your book, Fight Like Hell, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. That's our special bookshop. Where else can people find you on the internet? I am unfortunately still on Twitter. Yeah. Till the wheels fall off. Yeah. Um, I have a Patreon. I'm on Instagram. Um, my book just came out in paperback, so it's cheaper, which we love. And um, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm freelance, so I'm kind of all over the place. And one thing I did want to mention very quick before we go, because I think the comment period is still open. Um, there is a crisis in Appalachia. There's a black lung epidemic. And right now the government is considering implementing a, a rule that will essentially make the toxic material that is getting younger people and mine sick to take it down. And you can find that on regulations.gov. You can look up my black lung research. You can look up my writing on the, on this topic and you can put in a comment that says like, please protect coal miners, please protect workers. No one should be breathing in toxic silica. It's just one little plug I wanted to get in there. It is a terrible note to end on. No, 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 but- <laughs> no. Everyone is going to go do this. Everyone's going to go. Yeah, do that's this. your homework. Yeah. And then you can read my big old book and take, but take your time. It's just a big girl. <laughs> <laughs> Kim Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. <laughs> My God, thank you once again to Kim Kelly for coming on the show. If you loved that interview as much as I did, I hope you pick up a copy of her book, Fight Like Hell, at factuallypod.com slash books. When you buy a book there, you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookstore as well. If you want to support the show directly, just a reminder, you can do so at patreon.com slash Over Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. You can join our community Discord. We do a live book club over Zoom. We just had an awesome conversation with Jamie Loftus, who wrote Raw Dog. We had so much fun. We would love to have you join our community and hang out with us. It's so such a good time. And just as a reminder, if you donate 15 bucks a month, I will read your name on this very show and put your name at the end of the credits of every single one of my YouTube monologues. This week, I want to thank Chris Rezek, Nara Niles, and Quotidiophile. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I want to thank our producers, Sam Roudman and Tony Wilson, everybody here at HeadGum for making the show possible. If you want to come see me do stand-up live on the road, head to adamconover.net for tour dates and tickets. You can find me at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum podcast.